0: Hello, everybody. If I haven't met you, my name is Nate, and I'm really happy you came to church today. Thank you. And I know uh, we have all kinds of people in the room. Uh, some of you are here all the time, and we're trying to follow Jesus together. That's what we do. We consider ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, many followers. And some of you, you haven't been to church in a long time. Maybe you're spiritually unresolved. I'm really happy you came. This is a safe place to hopefully explore the Bible and to ask questions. And uh, here we have some guests we have a girls basketball team from Vanguard University in California. You guys are here for the NAIA tournament? Whoa, well, I can't believe you guys came to church. That was impressive. Thank you. If, if you can't tell, Billings is a whole lot like Southern California. It's pretty much the same thing. We just have this, like, this wet, frozen stuff that shows up every now and then. But the beach here, Lake Elmo, You guys, you got nothing on us. Hey, we are starting a series, and we're going to call it Keep Hope Alive. And the origins of the series came about about, probably in the fall. Um, We were just observing the world. Jay and I were talking, and I don't know about you, but sometimes when you look at world events, maybe you look at our nation, you worry a bit about the future, (laughs) I don't know if anybody's had that experience. You wonder, wow, where's the world going? What are we doing? What's happening? Uh, Wars, uh, strange things all over in terms of politics and uh, where people are headed. And here's what I noticed. I noticed that in my life I have a gauge similar to my gas gauge and it's my hope gauge. And there are times in life when I'm on full. I just, I have a lot of hope. I trust God's going to do big things in the future. I trust the people around me. I just feel like I'm anxious for tomorrow. But then there are times when my gauge of hope is a little bit down and it becomes very despondent, um, unsure of the future, worried about what will happen. Anybody in the room ever push your car beyond where you comfortably should in terms of gas? You, you just stretch it like, ah, I can get to work one more time, Right? And you're like, there's a slight downhill, so you put it into neutral and you're like. Pff. Living in Montana, there are times I've experienced this where you're driving, you forgot to get gas and you look at your gas gauge and you think, I hope there's a gas station in the next 120 miles. <laughs> and when you look at the map, there's not even a town. And you're like, uh oh, right. So when, when you're low on hope, when you're low on gasoline, there are certain things, emotions, that emerge. Now, what I'd like to do is we're just going to look at one chapter in the Bible from the book of First Peter. And we're going to look at what Peter tells these churches concerning hope. And I don't think we could fully grasp his message unless we're at least partially familiar with what is happening in the world during this time. So this book, First Peter, is written by Peter. Peter is one of the original apostles of Jesus Jesus had invested in him heavily. He had uh, given him a new name. He said, your name is now Petros. We, we translate that Peter, which means a rock. And he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. So Peter is the leader of the known church, the Christian church, and he's a significant figure. Now, there has been debate about the book of 1 Peter, because if we were able to read it in its original Greek, in terms of literary um, talent, it is brilliant. It is written in this very high, sophisticated, poetic, Greek form. Um, the, the vocabulary, the language is perhaps one of the mo- most well-structured uh, books in the entire New Testament. And then the problem is, is there's Second Peter. So the next book, 1 Peter and 2 Peter. 2 Peter is completely different. It's written in a very a rudimentary, basic form of Greek. And so for years, people struggled. They said there's no way that Peter, this Galilean fisherman, who probably had some knowledge of the Greek language but spoke Aramaic day to day, understood Greek for barter and for trade. There's no way he could have written this book. However, I think the book itself tells us um, why it's such a unique book. In chapter 5 of 1 Peter, verse 12, this is what Peter says. He says, with the help of Silas, Silas is a Greek name, Silas traveled with both Peter and Paul, whom I regard as a faithful brother. I have written you briefly, encouraging you to testify that this is the true grace of God. So Peter, at the end of his book, says, hey, by the way, Silas really helped me with this. And so Peter probably spoke out loud, and Silas worked as a scribe writing it down. So it was written by Peter, the the leader of the church at the time. It's written somewhere, we can't nail it down, but somewhere between 60 and 63 A.D. So we're talking right about 30 years after Jesus has died and been resurrected. Historically speaking, um, it's in the throes of the Roman Empire, 60, 63 A.D. Now, who is he writing to? Who's he writing to? Here's the recipients of the letter. Peter's going to address them as elect exiles, which we're going to have to talk about. Because elect and exiles, two words that typically don't go together. But he's going to say, I'm writing to you the elect exiles of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. I want to show you a map. It will be on the big screens and on this TV right here uh, to show you who this is being written to. So Peter, as he's writing, is here in Rome. This is the seat of the Roman Empire. And just for a moment, imagine this empire. It is perhaps the most successful empire the world had ever seen. It goes all the way down through North Africa, into the Middle East, up into what we call today Great Britain. And Peter's here in Rome. He's leading the Christian church, and he writes, this is the audience, to these people, people in Bithynia, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia. These are the recipients of the letter. This is what we call Turkey today. That landmass is Turkey, and it's a long ways away. Now, why, why is Peter, who lives in Rome, he's the pastor of the church of Rome, why is he writing to this group of people? What's behind it? Well, when we look at history, we realize that something unique is happening. Part of the brilliance of the Roman Empire is that as they invaded, through military force, I mean, incredible military machinery, they invade, they take over all of this known world, But what they do that's unique is they allow local communities and cultures to exist. They just say this, you can keep your local government structures. If you've got a monarch, if you've got a king, you can keep your king. You just have to submit to the emperor of Rome and you have to pay taxes to Rome. And they say you can keep your cultural customs and even your religions. We're not forcing you to worship the Roman gods. We'll allow you to worship your way. We'll allow you to keep your cultural identity, but you must pay taxes and submit to the emperor of Rome. So, Christianity in its first 30 years of existence was known in Latin as a religio licita, which meant a an allowed religion or a permitted religion. Just like all these others. And so, this, this amazing thing had happened. Some rabbi, very obscure, not educated in the traditional way, named Yeshua, Jesus, had in three years marched throughout this little portion of the Roman Empire doing extraordinary things, teaching things about God that no one had ever considered, announcing that a new day had come, announcing that there was hope for humanity, and then literally restoring the brokenness within humanity. Healing, restoring, forgiving people that Others thought were unforgivable. He is executed as a Roman criminal under a man named Tiberius. And they think it's all over. But his followers continue to claim that he's alive, that he resurrected from the dead after being crucified. And his followers begin to spread throughout the Roman Empire. And people like the Apostle Paul plant churches in places like Ephesus and Troas and, and Colossae and Iconium. And in just a matter of 30 years, the teachings of this obscure rabbi named Jesus have now they've penetrated the whole of the Roman Empire. Well, this has gone just fine. In fact, the Christians have experienced favoritism. They're caring for the poor. They're taking part of the... Uh, the challenges of society off of the Roman government. However, something is going to change. Right about 63 AD, there's a man named Nero who comes to the throne here in Rome. He's the new Caesar, the new emperor. Nero, even if we're not familiar with uh, Roman history, something about the Nero, that very word, makes you nervous, right? Because people who have Rottweilers name their dogs Nero. Right, They don't name him Bobby. They name him Nero. Nero was a ferocious and very, very insecure emperor of Rome. In fact, he's the one that turned the tide where Christianity was no longer a permitted religion. So what Nero wants is... He wants to be remembered. He wants to be significant. He doesn't want to just be one of those emperors that was forgotten. And he sees it's not going to be through military conquest, but what I'll do is I'm going to build buildings. I'm going to restore Rome in a way that I'll be remembered forever. Rome's very crowded at this point, at least a million people. So the whole state of Montana lives in this one city. It's being dilapidated. You can imagine the sanitation issues. And so... Rome on July 19th of 64 AD, about a year before this book is written, a year after this book is written, Rome catches fire. It's very mysterious where the fire started. For three days it burns. The fire has been put out. People from Nero's household are seen rekindling the fire, and so it blazes again. Almost a third of the city is destroyed. And so people, knowing that Nero wanted to rebuild the city in his honor, begin to blame him. This is what Nero does. He's got to find a scapegoat. And so his scapegoat are the Christians who originated in Jerusalem and now are throughout the Roman Empire. And he says that they're the ones who started the blaze. That this kingdom that they talk about, They're trying to destroy the Roman Empire to institute their new empire. So what is happening now in this place, this area, this geographic region that Peter is writing to, is you have this growing tension, which will find its apex a year from after the letter is written, where Christians who were often admired, at least tolerated, are now finding it very difficult to live out their faith. They're experiencing political tension. Their families are turning against them, saying, why are you leaving the ancient gods that we've always worshiped, the Greek and Roman gods, in business? They're finding it's inhospitable. They're finding economically they're being pressured because of this movement against the Christian church. They're, they're in a very tense, very precarious place. Little do they know that after 64 AD, Nero is going to release his fury on the Christian church. It's chronicled that he will, he'll take entire families, men, women, and children of Christians. He'll take fresh skins of animals that have been slaughtered. He'll sow them inside and release a tribe of lions to devour the Christians in it for public spectacle. It deteriorates to the place where Nero Hosting dinner parties is going to take Christians and create human torches. And they will burn and provide the light by which he'll host his guests. So these people, can you imagine? This tension's just at the beginning. And their hope. They're so filled with hope. Originally, this message about Jesus and who God is and a new start for us. But as the tension builds, their hope has dissipated. I want to read a quote from a Roman historian by the name of Tacitus. Um, Chapter 15, verse 44 of his annals, where he says this. Neither human assistance nor the shape of imperial gifts, meaning bribes from Nero, nor attempts to appease the gods could remove the sinister report that the fire was due to Nero's own orders. So Rome thought Nero has burned his own city to the ground. He can't get rid of it. And so, in the hope of dissipating the rumor, Nero, he falsely diverted the charge on a sect of people to whom the vulgar gave the name Christians and who were detested for the abominations they perpetrated. Now, let me tell you just for a moment what these abominations were. Nero spread the belief that Christians were practicing a form of cannibalism. So this idea that they took communion, um, Nero was looking for anything to turn the people against them, and so Nero said, "This is what the Christians do. I found out in their meetings they're actually eating the flesh and drinking the blood of one of their members. And so the Romans began to believe that these Christians were very peculiar. were practicing cannibalism. The founder of the sect, one Christus, Christ, Jesus by name, had been executed by Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius. And the dangerous superstition, though put down for the moment, broke out again, not only in Judea, the original home of the pest, but even in Rome. And so you can tell, even from a historical account, that these tensions are mounting, that it's not this wonderful, warm society where Christians are thriving. They're losing their hope. Now, what do you do when that happens? What do you do when culture is inhospitable? What do you do when Nero is on the throne? What do you do when you're not sure what tomorrow is going to bring? Well, I just want to read three verses. It's the opening of Peter's letter to these people who are experiencing a crisis of hope let's read together from 1 Peter chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 Peter an apostle of Christ Jesus apostle means sent one to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus Galatia Cappadocia Asia and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter's opening words to a group of people who needed hope. This is how you keep hope alive. Number one, number one, Peter seems to be saying this. You have to find a way to reject your rejection. When you're experiencing rejection, Peter says, you can't let that rejection attach itself to your life understood there's economic rejection. There's familiar rejection. There's political rejection. You're being rejected by the Roman Empire. But one of the things that you have to make sure of is you don't let that rejection seep inside of your soul. You have to find a way to reject rejection. So I, I think most human beings are very, very susceptible to rejection. If you're rejected by a parent, by someone you love, if you're rejected, the tendency is you begin to believe something about yourself that's not true. I am deficient. I'm not enough. There's a reason that I was rejected. What they said about me is actually true. And So Peter says this. In order to live in this hostile environment, you're going to have to reject the rejection that's coming towards you. There are two things at play. First of all was the cultural rejection. that No longer were they thriving in business. Now there's economic persecution. There's eventually going to be physical persecution. And that rejection, it has a tendency to make someone clam up, look inside, shut down, and Peter says, you've got to reject it. You've got to keep moving. But there's a whole other spiritual rejection that they're dealing with. So all of those churches we saw on the map, all that, that, that area, one of the things we know from books like Galatians is there were two distinct groups of people in the Christian church. Okay, really, it was only two. And it was people who were Jewish or Hebrew, okay? And then those they called Gentiles, And a Gentile was anyone who, by genetics, was not Jewish. And so the Jews, God had been working through them for many years. Uh, their, their forefather, Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, God looks at this man, Abraham, and says, Abraham, I have a plan for the world. I want to restore what's broken in the world, and I am going to do it through you and through your descendants. So Abraham's descendants were the Jewish people, and God works and through history to bring it to this place where Jesus Christ could arrive. And they were God's chosen people, right? Well, what's happened is after Paul has traveled and planted churches, I mean, he, he comes into a place like Galatia, like Pontus, Bithynia, and they've been worshiping these gods. They're terrified of Jupiter. Jupiter's the primary Roman god, and he holds a lightning bolt in his hand. And if you, if you do something wrong, he'll send lightning, destroy your life. So they're always trying to appease these angry gods. And here comes Paul and says, I, I have a new message for you. It's called the Good News. And it's the message of Jesus that God is no longer angry at humanity. That everything that ever needed to be paid for, every mistake, was dealt with on the cross when this Jesus, who was God in the flesh, died in our place, resurrected, is alive, is moving in our midst. And so all of these places, why did it take root in the Roman em- Empire? It's because they said, you're kidding me. This isn't about my moral performance. Paul, you've got to be joking. This isn't about me being better, trying harder, doing more. God loves me as I am. He knows everything I've done. And if I just trust him, if I just follow him, everything's paid for. The answer was yes. So these churches are thriving. They're growing. However, this group of people who Paul calls Judaizers, so they're Jewish people, who have accepted the message of Jesus feel like not enough is being done. So they go out to Turkey, what we just saw on the map, and they visit these churches, and they show up. And, I mean, these guys, they've got the look they, they, they've studied the Old Testament. They probably have massive portions of it memorized. They, they live in a peculiar way because they're following the teachings of the Old Testament. And they show up at these Christian churches and they go, hey, everybody, how are you doing? They're like, we're so good. God loves us. We're forgiven. We're followers of Jesus. And the Judaizers go, well, we're happy for you. But God cannot fully accept you until you take on all of the things that the Old Testament, the first two-thirds of the Bible, all the ceremonial laws. When you start doing all of that, then you'll be fully accepted by God. Paul was taking it a little light. He just said all you need to do is trust Jesus, give your life to him, but we need some serious behavioral change in you. We need you to start reading the Old Testament. We need you to start following all the laws. And, by the way, God will not accept you, men, unless you go through a little operation that we call circumcision. That went over like a ton of bricks in the new Christian church. They're like, what? Paul told us that God accepted us as we were, regardless of our past, that Jesus embraces us. And the Judaizers were like, no, 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 no. You read the Old Testament Anybody who had any relationship with God was circumcised. And you need to do this. So it creates all this consternation in the church. They're not just feeling rejection from society, but they are now feeling they might be rejected by God. Why? Because they haven't been circumcised. And so this beautiful message of grace and forgiveness is now coming back to a performance. You have to do the right things did you notice how Peter addressed them? He says this. He says, "I write to you the elect exiles." If you have a different translation of the Bible, it might say it might say elect strangers, pilgrims of the dispersion, but this word elect exiles. Here's what Peter's doing. It's brilliant. These are all Gentiles, non-Jewish people, who are wondering if they can be chosen, if what the Jewish preachers are telling them is true. And this is what Paul does. He takes a phrase, he takes a word that was only used for the Hebrew Jewish people, the elect, the chosen ones. And he says, when I write a letter to you, I'm gonna address you as the elect chosen exiles sure this world's not your home you're always being exile you'll always feel a little bit uncomfortable but you are elect the very same thing that god had for abraham and all his descendants he now elects you you are the elect exiles reject that feeling of rejection get rid of it Secondly, he says this, so reject your rejection. Secondly, he says, and you have to realize in order to have joy when life gets difficult that you are chosen. You're chosen. It's very big, very complex idea that God's foreknowledge, he chose you. It's not an accident. I don't know what brought you to church today. Maybe you're playing in a basketball tournament. Maybe you went through a crisis. You're not here by accident. He has chosen you. When I was in elementary school, I changed changed classes, uh, schools mid-year, we'd moved. You know how it is. Um, You come in midway through the year and everything is kind of disrupted and everybody already has their friends. And I remember it was maybe the second, third day of school. All the boys lined up at recess and we would play uh, touch football. And um, there's two alpha males, you know, like the two really tough first graders. And they're the team captains, right? And the rest of us line up in front of the team captains. I've only been there a day or two. I don't know anybody's names. I'm feeling totally insecure. I miss my own school. I miss my old friends. And we're there, and the team captains start picking people. And, um, man, everybody's getting chosen except for me. And one kid who, I'm not being judgmental, looks super unathletic, Okay. And it's just me and him. We're the last two. And team captain goes, I'll take him. I'm not kidding you. I can still see the guy's face. I'm the last one left. And he goes, I'll take that guy. Right? I remember that feeling of I'm not chosen. They don't want me. And that is a base core feeling that human beings deal with all the time when it comes to God. That I am not loved. There's something so defective. There's something too broken. My past is too riddled with trauma or pain or mistakes that I couldn't be chosen. And what does Peter say? He says, you've got to reject your feelings of rejection and you have to realize that you have been chosen. Just like God chose Abraham centuries before. He chooses you. And if we aren't careful, if we aren't careful, the whole message of Christianity, it can, it can degrade down into this system where it's like the NFL combine that's going on this week. Everybody's trying to perform. Here you've got all these guys that just finished their their college football career and now they are being measured and prodded and interviewed and they're being tested how fast can he run this drill how much can he lift this weight and NFL scouts are are writing down recording and all these guys they're just hoping that they impress coaches enough that in April they'll be chosen they'll be drafted and if you aren't careful if I'm not careful the message of Jesus deteriorates down into this thing of me trying to perform for God, hoping that he'll love me, hoping that he'll accept me, hoping that he'll choose me. And Peter says this, understand, please, you've been elected and you've been chosen It has nothing to do with your skill. It has nothing to do with your morality. It has nothing to do with how good you've been. It has to do with this, is that somebody died in your place and paid for every sin imaginable, and now you are forgiven. And when the father looks down, he's not assessing your behavior. He's not assessing what you've done or haven't done. When he looks down, all he sees is a perfect Jesus who died in your place. And so you were chosen. You're not on the fringes. You could not be any more loved than you are right now. His love for us is mind-blowing. I can't even conceive it. His love for me is complete. His love for you is complete. You can't make him love you anymore. Because I'm accepted. I don't have to strive for acceptance. I'm already accepted. And what he says, and this is, how, this is how you were chosen, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Meaning, you didn't even initiate this. You weren't like, you didn't draw God's attention because you were such a good person. He says, no, the Spirit of God is just always working in humanity, drawing people. Saying, you need an answer. You need a hope. Turn to God. It's God who's doing that. He, he says, you were chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ. You weren't just given a ticket into heaven like God's like, hmm, ticket for you, ticket for you. He's choosing human beings. He's bringing them in. And he says, and here's what I want. Be a part of the mission of God. you are chosen to help speak his message, to heal the sick, to declare who God is to a culture that's desperately in need. And get this, this is going to make you, this is going to make you, ooh. You've been chosen and sprinkled with his blood. Anybody like being sprinkled with blood? Gross, right? You put on, put on rubber gloves, put on a mask. We don't want blood. Stuff's transferred in blood. So why why does Peter say, "Hey, I want you to know you've been chosen and sprinkled with blood"? It probably goes back to Exodus chapter twenty nine. Exodus twenty nine is the story of Aaron, who's the first priest. He's the brother of Moses, and Aaron is made special garments, these white linen garments, and he he. He's going to be the representative of God before the people. And he's standing here in these beautiful garments. And what does Moses do? He sprinkles the blood of a sacrificed animal onto Moses' garments, onto Aaron's garments, staining them. So he'll always have these sprinkles of blood. And it's a sign. You have been forgiven. You are now our emissary. God has chosen you for this task. And Peter says, Listen, you're chosen. You've been sprinkled with his blood. You've been covered. You've been forgiven. Quit working for it. Quit trying to earn it. It's complete. You're elect. You're chosen. And the final thing he tells them in order to keep your hope alive, regardless of what happens, is you've got to remember that you've got rebirth into a living hope. You have a brand new birth into a living hope. There is finally an answer to spiritual decay. It's the thing that plagues every human being from the beginning of time is that when we originally rebelled against God, something in us, you're made in three parts. I'm made in three parts. There's this part, my flesh, my sarks. There's uh, my soul, my mind, will, emotions, my personality. But then there is another part that is very unique that the rest of creation doesn't have, and it's a spirit. It's this capacity to know God and to relate to him. But the Bible says our spirits died. They were crushed when we rebelled against God. So throughout history, human beings have been here. God's been up there, and we've always known there's some gap between us, but we haven't known how to bridge the gap. But religions teach if, if, if you just study more, if you sacrifice more, if you meditate more, if you give more, find something, climb the ladder, achieve God. But the message of Jesus is this, is that God said, because of your spiritual death, you can never achieve me. So I will come to earth. I will become human. I will die on a cross in your place to pay for your mistakes so that you could have spiritual rebirth. Spiritual resuscitation. Become alive again. Become fully human See, human beings, without this rebirth, we're only operating on two out of our three cylinders. Physically alive, emotionally alive, but not spiritually alive, no capacity to relate to God. And so Peter says this, he's given you rebirth into this beautiful living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter is going to come back to this idea of resurrection and how important it is. We're we're coming up on Easter. But he says, you're alive. You can know God. No matter how bad things get around there, you're chosen. Reject your rejection. And remember that you were dead and now you're alive. And it really doesn't matter what happens culturally. Because you know God. He's resuscitated you. And you serve not some historical figure named Jesus Christ. You serve a God who is alive and at work and he conquered death. Therefore you too will conquer death and he is still working. This isn't a historical religion. This is following a living, teaching, moving Jesus who is still on the planet. And regardless what happens with Rome, regardless what happens with Nero, no matter how bad things get, Jesus is alive and he is ultimately on the throne and he is ruling. So you can have hope. Even in the midst of bad times. Now, Peter. Somewhere between 64 and 65 A.D., after the burning of Rome, after the persecution breaks out, Nero zeroes in on Peter. So, oh, you're, you're the leader of this church. He says, Peter, I sentence you to execution. The most horrific form of execution that Rome, even before that, Babylon could ever create. Nail somebody to a cross and over a period of 12 to 48 hours, watch them slowly die. You know what Peter says to Nero? Peter says, okay, Nero, I only have one request. I could never consider being executed the way Jesus was. Like, his death changed everything. His resurrection changed everything. And I still have hope. I'm still alive, even though you're going to kill me. So he says, Nero, here's what I'd like. Just grant me one request. You can crucify me. That's fine. But do it with me hanging upside down. Because I don't want to die the way Jesus died. That's too good for me. This is the only person that we know of in history that was nailed to a cross upside down, suffered and died. What was happening in Peter? He had a living hope. If my hope is living because I'm spiritually alive, It doesn't matter what happens. My hope is vibrant. Your hope is vibrant. Your hope is thriving. It's palpable. Because we serve a living God who has chosen us. Would you pray with me? Lord, in a room like this, we'd probably be at many different places when it comes to hope. Some of us, we'd be running on empty. Lord, I know there's people in this room that have a sense of desperation, feelings of rejection that are so profound. We have very little hope for tomorrow. Others of us would have plenty of hope. It's a good season. Lord, this is what we pray. We pray that we would reject that feeling, that sense, that religious spirit that says you've not done enough. We reject rejection, and we believe that we have been accepted. And for everyone in this room, here's what I'd like to say to you. You are elect. He died for you. He chose you. And it's not about what you do for him. You cannot impress him. It's about what he has done for you, what was already accomplished in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's all that's ever needed. And now you are chosen and have rebirth into a living hope. Not not a hope, not a fanciful hope, not a a fairy tale, tale hope, but a hope that's alive because Jesus is alive. We hope in you. We're elect. We're chosen. We don't understand it. We're not worthy of it. But you've done it. I wonder if you keep your eyes closed for just a moment. For any of us in the room who you might say, Nate, when you're talking about spiritual death, I think that's me. Maybe you've been trying to resuscitate yourself. You've been trying to build a relationship with God, and it's been dependent on you, and you thought, if I could just try harder, if I could just quit doing those things, if I could adjust this, if I could adjust that. Listen, I hate to tell you this, but you can never save yourself. You need miraculous rebirth, and that comes from Jesus, from accepting, believing, following him. And if there's a death inside of you right now, Jesus went to a cross and came out of a grave so that you could have rebirth. If you need to be reborn today, would you do this? I want you to be very bold. I want you to raise your hand and wave at me and I wanna meet eyes with you. If you're saying, I need that today, I need to be reborn. Yeah, right there, you're a brand new creation. Yeah, both of you, you're his, you're forgiven son and daughter. Anybody, yes, yeah, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. I see your hand, absolutely, yes, sir. You're his, you're forgiven, you're made new. Right over here, yes, ma'am, you're his daughter. You're his daughter, he loves you completely, right here. Yeah, yeah, okay, all three of you, yes, ma'am. You're forgiven, you're made new. If you're, okay, right back here, yeah, absolutely. In the balcony, if that's you, will you wave at me? Yeah, all right, both of you, you mean this, don't you? Yes, sir, right up there, yes, ma'am. You're made new. Yeah. I see your hand. A new start, a new day for you. Yeah. Both of you. All three of you right there. Yeah. And in the back, okay, I'm sorry I missed you. Here as well. Yeah. New birth, new day. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah. Hey, would you open your eyes? Um, I, I, I lost track. But a whole lot of people had a life-changing event, the beginning of a new journey. Would you just applaud their decision? Mm. So this is the beginning of a new life, right? So you may think, well, I I still feel the same. Uh Uh-uh. You're reborn, right? But it's a brand-new journey. You're chosen. You're his. You're in his family. Um, If you did raise your hand, stop by the Welcome Center out there. Talk to somebody. i got a Bible. I want to put it in your hands. We'd love to help you get baptized. Everybody else, have some great hope this week. Be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you need prayer for anything, there's people up front you can trust. God bless you and you are loved.